This is an ABC podcast. G'day. My name's uh, Dylan Hill and I'm talking to you from Davis Station, Antarctica, where I'm currently one of the station mechanics. Home for me is uh, in Mildura, Victoria, but I arrived here in Antarctica November 2019 and I won't set foot back on the mainland until March 21. I've chosen this episode for you that I really love. It really has you hanging on the edge of your seat all the way through. Taipans are one of the world's most dangerous snakes. People who've been bitten by a taipan describe it as like being attacked by a vicious dog. The taipan's long fangs puncture through clothes and then it hangs on, injecting great quantities of poisonous venom. This venom speeds into the bloodstream and it attacks the organs, the heart, the blood, the nerves. And before long, the victim is likely to be convulsing, then paralysed, their skin turning black from lack of oxygen. It's possible to die within minutes of being bitten by a taipan. Aboriginal people were, of course, very aware of taipans. But when whitefellas began arriving in Australia, this terrifying snake was thought to be just a rumour. But as more and more farmers, cane cutters and school kids died after being bitten by a fast-moving big brown snake, groups of snake hunters started travelling north on the hunt for live taipans. Brendan James Murray tells the story of the taipan and the race for an anti-venom in his book, Venom. Hi, Brendan. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. Where does your interest in taipans come from? It's very hard for me to remember exactly when I became interested in snakes, but what I can say is like a lot of little boys, I was always fascinated by animals and in particular dangerous animals. The more dangerous, <laughs> the better. And it was something that I never quite grew out of. Did you used to catch snakes yourself? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I was Your always running. Relief. Yeah, to my parents' relief. <laughs> I was always running around after lizards uh, and I knew enough and I'd been warned enough by my parents to leave the snakes alone. When did you first come across the story of George Rosendale? I guess I would have been probably only about 13 or 14 and I read in a book about the Taipan that, and it was only just a little paragraph, a passing reference, that there was an Indigenous man who'd been bitten by a Taipan in 1949 before an anti-venom had been developed and he survived. He was the only person known to have survived. I was fascinated by that, but there was really no information out there about who George Rosendale was, what he'd experienced. So in 1949, what was George doing when he was bitten? George Rosendale was at a worksite in far north Queensland at a place that's now called Hopevale. They were building a mission, uh, building a community. And there, there were large amounts of timber stacked about the place and George had been given the job to sort the timber like with like so the carpenters and builders could then uh, work with it. Uh, he'd just had lunch and he was walking back to the worksite past some stacks of timber. I think it was about one in the afternoon or so. And a nearly eight foot taipan lunged out from beneath a plank of wood and latched onto his leg. What didn't just bite and speed off? No, it bit and hung on. And uh, the pain, as he described it, felt like uh, being stung by a hornet. How did he get the snake off him? He had to kick it off. He was with some other people who had actually saw the snake uh, a moment before it bit him and they all sort of ran back. And uh, with a few 
a few kicks. He managed to shake it clear from his leg. Uh, and he knew immediately, as you alluded to earlier, as the, the Indigenous people of that area knew about the Taipan or, or what they referred to as the Newman snake and uh, immediately panicked, which is understandable, and sprinted to a man named George Bowen. Who... And why is that a, a bad thing, to sprint once you've been bitten? So snake venom travels via the lymphatic system just underneath the skin, and the way to retard the movement of that venom is to, to be as still as possible. So the more you move, the faster the venom is going to travel. Hard to do once you've been bitten, latched onto by an eight-foot type. Absolutely. <laughs> so he understandably runs off, and, and, and what happens next? Well, the snake tried to attack or attempted to bite his friend who was there and a number of Indigenous men actually killed it with their spears. To put it in context, not to demonise the animal too much, it would have been terrified and thought it was fighting for its life. George, though, reached a little building where uh, the older George Bowen was waiting and George Rosendale said, Grandfather Bowen, I've been bitten by a taipan. And he lost consciousness very, very quickly. But what Bowen attempted to do was cut the bite site to promote bleeding, which was the recommended first aid ah, at the time. So it was thought what that would let the venom out if you if you bled the site. Correct. So he got uh, a knife out of a drawer and immediately slashed the wound. Fortunately for Rosendale, he was more or less unconscious at this point but the wound would not bleed. He was not able to... Why to was that? Most likely it was because uh, Taipan venom contains, uh, not to get too scientific, but it, it contains proteins that prevent... Uh, or, well, they promote blood clotting, actually, to put it simply. So probably the, the blood at the site of the bite was quite clotted. And what other first aid did George get in those sort of first minutes after being bitten? Well, it's not for the squeamish, but there was a man named Clary Hartwig, who was a white carpenter overseeing the build, and he got word that George had been bitten by this taipan. So he grabbed his toolkit, ran to the building, and seeing that uh, George Bowen was not able to get the bite to bleed, he took out a chisel and a hammer. He aimed it carefully, placing the, the blade of the chisel just above the side of the bite, and with the hammer, he chiseled George Rosendale's leg open to the bone uh, and actually opened an artery causing quite catastrophic bleeding. And that was still trying to get the venom out through letting the blood flow. That's what he thought he was doing. However, it's now known that promotion of bleeding does nothing to improve the prognosis. But of all of those blood. men were, were so aware that at that point being bit by a taipan meant death. Correct. They knew, and it was uh, it had been widely reported in the media at the time, people knew that this a bite from this snake meant certain death. So they were doing absolutely everything they could to try to save George Rosendale's life. So what happened to him next? He was then placed in a, a position where, in addition to being likely to die from envenomation from the Taipan venom, he was also in real risk of dying from blood loss. But the only, the only option that was really available was for those men to transport George to the nearest hospital, which was at Cooktown. How not, far is that from uh, Hopevale? Well, it's, it's around about, a, at that time with those roads, it was around about a four-hour drive over very rough country. So they picked George Rosendale up, put him in the back of a truck and set off for Cooktown, not really expecting that he 
would be alive when they reached the hospital. Was he? He was. <laughs> and so once he gets there to, to the hospital with all this blood loss and the, and the venom in him, what kind of care could they offer him? It was very, very, very minimal care. There were a couple of nurses on duty. By pure luck, there was a Victorian doctor on a holiday in Cooktown on a sightseeing tour, and they, some local people managed to round him up, and they got him in. So they had a doctor and two nurses. Uh, they had no anti-venom at all because, for one thing, the type N anti-venom hadn't been developed, but even the tiger snake anti-venom, which was recommended at the time, they had none in stock. So what they were required to do was contact Cairns and hope that the aerial ambulance would be able to fly in tiger snake antivenom, and they didn't even believe that would work anyway. How common was it to have aerial ambulances in the late 40s? At that time, the the Cairns aerial ambulance was very, very new, and they'd actually never flown at night, and it was in the evening by the time Rosendale arrived. So they were quite excited. This was an opportunity (laughs) for them to fly at night for the first time, and... The aviation authorities were quite reluctant to let them take off because conditions over Cooktown were quite poor. But eventually they talked the uh, the authorities into letting them take off and off they uh, headed towards uh, Cooktown with a tiger snake anti-venom and blood for transfusion. And did that, did that anti-venom help? Uh, it most probably didn't. I think a really interesting story, though, as well in relation to that flight was when they arrived at Cooktown, the runway wasn't illuminated, so they couldn't land. And they radioed down to the ground, and the solution to that problem was a whole heap of local people in their cars got together, drove to that the airstrip, and used the headlights of their cars to illuminate the, the airstrip so the, the plane could land. And it could land safely. Correct. Incredible. But this would seem everything was stacked against George Rosendale surviving. Everything. everything. He went into cardiac arrest Four times. He was that ill that when his blood was extracted, and the nurses actually saved some of this for him, he was that ill that when the blood was extracted, it was black in colour. So, how did he survive? It really defies explanation. George Rosendale's belief, and he's a deeply spiritual person, he grew up on a Lutheran mission, his belief is that God saved him. I'm not a religious person. So I don't particularly believe that, but I respect the belief that he has. Um, I wish I could explain to you why he survived, but it, it, it defies explanation. He really should not have lived. Was the fact that he was Indigenous, was that seen in, in the media or in some medical quarters even as part of a, an explanation for why he might have survived? People put forward that explanation at times in a way that was arguably a somewhat racist discourse because there was this perception at the time that there were inherent biological differences between black and white. So really the fact that he was Indigenous, I don't think had anything to do with it. And Indigenous people will tell you that uh, many, many, many Indigenous people have been killed tragically by Taipans down through the years. It is a big mystery and it has profoundly affected the way George Rosendale perceived the world after he survived because he actually asked God in a brief moment of consciousness to, uh, to save him. Have you ever met him? I have met him. And, and what was he like? He was a fascinating guy. He still remains to me slightly enigmatic. Uh, I travelled up to Hope Vale where he still lives. He's in a, a retirement home. Uh, he's completely deaf, so it's impossible to communicate with him on the phone. So what I was doing was I was typing messages to him on, 
on my laptop, which she will, would read and respond to. That's how we communicated. And I'd actually done that with my own grandfather before he passed away. So that was kind of familiar to me. But um, he's a, a very, very intelligent, very spiritual, very philosophical man who he, he has insightful views on a very, very broad range of topics. Did he remember? I mean, could, could he talk to you about that day when he was bitten by a taipan? He could, and he did. And he also showed me the scar, which is still on his leg. He has no... He remembers being bitten. He remembers running to George Bowen for help, but he has no memory of anything following that until he regained consciousness. I think it was about a week later at... Cairns Hospital, where he was eventually flown. Uh, he woke up with tubes down his throat and not knowing what was going on. However, if you look at the medical reports, he actually was able to communicate verbally with the doctors during his treatment. So he must have had some level of consciousness, but uh, now he has no recollection of any of that. And, and how quickly was he able to go home? It was some weeks. I think it might have been about two or three weeks by the time uh, they said, you can go home now. Regular checkups were required. And he returned to Hopevale with the nickname Mr. Famous because he was all <laughs> over the media. But he also returned a deeply unsettled man. He, he as anyone, it would happen to anyone having such a close brush with death, uh, he was very frightened. He was terrified of snakes from that point on. He couldn't even look at pictures of them. He would shake uncontrollably. And he felt that he had had this profound experience where he had he should have died. He'd asked for God to save him and God had saved him. When did you see your first Taipan, Brendan? I probably saw my first one in the zoo as a, as a kid. But when I was researching the book, I reached out to a number of people in the herpetological community, so the reptile community, and uh, I don't know if I should name him because I don't know if this is allowed, but uh, one was a, a young vet, a very passionate reptile vet who uh, keeps snakes and a range of other animals at his home, including taipans, and he had me as a guest in his home. He has taipans at his home? Yeah, he has a coastal taipan, two inland taipans. These are like the most venomous snakes in the world. Yeah, and it's legal for him to have them. Don't get me wrong, he's not breaking any laws or anything. He's fully licensed. But he was he, he took me to his home and he the coastal taipan is what the book is primarily about. He showed me the coastal taipan, took it out of its enclosure. which what, Held it in front of you? He did, yeah. So it's it was born in captivity. So captive-born specimens are much more placid than wild specimens, but it's still a very dangerous animal, but a really beautiful animal as well. It what was, does it look like? Uh, that one, I suppose, would have been about seven feet long. It was uh, its genetic heritage was from the Cooktown area, so it had evolved to have a body that was a sort of yellowy, browny, coppery colour, similar to the soil up there. A much paler head. It sort of had orangey red eyes, which Taipans are famous for, and a very sleek, streamlined, shining appearance. You didn't hold it, I'm hoping. I did not. Did you touch it? I did not. <laughs> I took photographs of it. <laughs> the eyes you mentioned are this sort of red in colour. What else is distinctive about the eyes of a taipan? So taipans have what the experts call a superocular scale, which is a scale that 
protrudes just slightly above the eyes. They've evolved that for more protection to their eyes, but it gives them this almost scowling expression, which you'll see if you look kind at one. Kind of got a fierce, a fierce expression, it they looks do. to us. They look perpetually angry and they've got these red eyes and that combined with their reputation, I think, has contributed to the reason that they've been almost mythologised, particularly in the far north of Australia. And what about the fangs of the taipan? Are they different from other sorts of snake of that size? They, they're, Taipans are a member of a family that's called the Elapidae family, and they have short fixed fangs at the front of the mouth, as opposed to the big hinged fangs of vipers. And Elapids are known to have relatively short fangs. Taipan fangs can be around about a centimetre long, which situates them as having unusually large fangs for the type of snake that they are. And that's because their marsupial prey has got a decent amount of fur, fur, so to speak, and that they need to be able to bite through that so they can actually eat. And how quickly can they move? Extremely quickly. It's not the sort of thing where you can put a kilometres per hour on it, but a taipan can strike, the experts say can strike the length of its body and it can do that extremely quickly because they are quite muscular but also very, very light. They're, They're a light snake built for speed because they chase their prey down. They they spot their prey using their eyes and they chase them. So they've evolved to be very fast. When European settlers started coming to Australia, how worried were they about snakes? Initially, um, I suppose they didn't know much about them, but it became clear quickly that there were plenty of snakes in Australia that could kill them. And on top of that, I think snakes hold this special part this special place in the human psyche. Their devil in the Bible, in the Christian Bible, was represented by a snake and they have this all these sinister connotations and people are very frightened of them. There's some, some people believe that we've evolved to have a fear of snakes and there's some evidence to suggest that that could be true. So they were, they were concerned. Amal- Amelie Dietrich, she sailed to Australia, I think, in, in 1863. Yes. Why did she come here? What was she looking for? Amelie Dietrich was employed by a German museum to come to Australia and collect specimens for display purposes. That, that was all the advice she was really given. She could pretty much get whatever she wanted. And so she collected all manner of things. She was based in Rockhampton. She was actually the only woman ever employed in that role, which I think is interesting. But she was very, very successful from the museum's perspective. And in the 18th, well, I've forgotten the precise year, but she was the first white person on record to successfully capture a coastal taipan. Did she know that's what she was capturing? No, she would have had no idea what it was. All she would have known was that it was a big, big brown snake. And that snake, which she captured, killed and preserved and sent back to Germany, is still to this day uh, on display in Germany. Did she say how she caught it? No, that's sort of been lost to history, that story. But by all accounts, she was a very uh, a very hardy woman, an outdoorsy woman. She wasn't intimidated by much of anything. I think the fact that she came from Germany to a colonial outpost 
is, reveals to hump that snakes. That's is, right. It's quite a marker of hardiness. That's true. <laughs> and I mean, there is a dark side to her story, which uh, is referred to in the book. But from the perspective of the snake, uh, she she did display, I guess, a great deal of courage in doing that because she would have known that it was probably an extremely venomous animal that could have killed her. So in these uh, you know, early years of European settlement, snakes are occasionally being seen or found or in, in Amelie's case caught, but they're not known to be of a particular species or, or their, their qualities aren't known. Tell me about John Pringle, who was a cane farmer. He was bitten by what came to be known as a taipan. What, um, what symptoms did John show? John was well over six foot, big healthy guy and he was a cane farmer and a number of his cattle had died in the months leading up to what happened to him and he suspected that they'd been bitten by a snake which lived in a hollow mango tree he believed near a well on his farm so he went out there to kill it uh he had a go at it with a with a hoe and he didn't kill it and it bit him within well initially that he didn't have a lot of symptoms but within about an hour he was having massive convulsions, uh, paralysis of the the vocal cords and the breathing muscles. So he had slurred speech, couldn't swallow, difficulty breathing. The convulsions got progressively worse until uh, he died. I think it was about three or four hours after he was bitten. And how did they manage to get that snake or how did they know what snake had done that to him? About a year later, Pringle's brother showed up at the hospital with a jar containing the preserved head of a snake that he had killed. And he went into the hospital saying he was convinced it was the same snake that had killed his brother. The doctor in the emergency ward sent it back to the museum for identification and it was confirmed that that was a coastal taipan. Okay. And they're known to frequent cane fields. So it was sort of where that happened and in the the environment that it happened the symptoms all point to it being a So by time. this stage, it was clear to, to white Australians that there was a, a distinct species of snake that was particularly venomous and living up in this part of North Queensland. Yeah, and they had all different names for it. Some people called it the cane snake. Some people called it the giant brown snake, wallum brown, traveller brown. So there were all these kind of local nicknames for the snake, but the scientific community hadn't really put it all together yet. As you say, cane fields are a really distinctive part of um, aspect of this part of Australia. Mm. Why do taipans like cane fields? Because it's an all-you-can-eat buffet of rats. <laughs> it's, the, it's the sizzler for it's taipans. The sizzler, <laughs> it's the sizzler of the north. So this is an example of how we can cause these bizarre catastrophic imbalances in the natural world. You create the cane fields, the introduced rats love the cane fields, so they're absolutely everywhere, and suddenly the taipans have this environment that has never existed for millions of years, and they absolutely love it because they go in there, there's rats everywhere, they're easy for the taipans to find and catch, and this is why in, in that era cane farmers in particular were terrified of the taipan. And a lot of the cane farmers were Italian, um, not speaking English. So uh, was information about how to avoid these snakes or what to do, was, was that something that, you know, non-English speaking immigrants were getting clear not, on? Not initially. As an example, there was one Italian who 
was an Italian cane farmer who was bitten by a snake in the morning, a large brown snake, and he was so naive to the situation that he sought no medical help and actually went down into town to an appointment he had at the mill uh, without seeking any treatment or anything at all. Uh, he collapsed while he was waiting for that appointment and died not long afterwards. It was realised around this time that particularly the uneducated Italian migrant workers needed to know the dangers posed by snakes in the cane fields and, and brochures and so forth started to be put out. A lot of um, snakes were killed once cane toads were introduced uh, yes. to cane fields. What effect did they have on taipans? They had no effect on the taipans at all because... But they're poisonous. Well, the, they are, but the taipans wouldn't eat them. So taipans much, much prefer marsupial, mammalian prey. So red belly blacks and all these other snakes started dying out because they were eating the toads. Uh, the taipans weren't eating the toads because generally speaking, and I'm sure the odd taipan would eat one, but generally speaking, amphibians don't form part of the taipan's diet. So then there was just even even more rats for them, Exactly I guess. right. What about uh, kids who are particularly susceptible to injury or death from snake bite because of their size? Were kids mm. being bitten by taipans in this period? They were. And I think that's particularly, and having talked to people from the era, that was what in particular with some of them really inspired them to go out, the herpetologists, and risk their lives catching the snakes. Because you can educate people about snakes, you can warn them about the dangers, but Children, as we know, they take risks, they play in the bush, they're going to get bitten. A little 10-year-old boy named Bruce Stringer, who was playing cowboys and Indians at the back of his schoolyard in freshwater, uh, a lot of children were bitten and uh, Bruce leapt over a log, running away from his friends and landed almost on top of a coastal taipan, which proceeded to bite him, and that was in 1955. And was he aware of the kind of snake that bit him? Were people on the lookout particularly for taipans by that period? By that point in time, it had reached a point almost of hysteria about taipans. I think it's one of those moments in history that's been forgotten that you almost need to have lived to appreciate. When I was researching the book, looking at newspaper articles at the time, in the North, there were countless articles about taipans every single day. So it was like Taipan terror kind of it, scenario. Absolutely, absolutely. And the media happily fanned that panic. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash Conversations. Brendan, you were talking about the the terror around Taipans and the kind of the public fear and the newspaper stories and, and understandably people there's no anti venom, the snakes are there, they're known to be fast, they're known to there's no known cure. Of course people are terrified of them. But not everyone at this point uh, in Australia's history sees the Taipan as a sort of demonic creature. Tell me about the Australian Reptile Club. In the mid to late 1940s, there, well, it actually, it started with one young man. His name was Roy McKay, who lived uh, near Sydney, and he was passionate about all wildlife, but particularly reptiles. And he, along with some of his friends, particularly a, a man named, or a young man, teenager named Kevin Budden, 
decided that they would start a club, which Roy ended up running out of his parents' home. They would meet once a month and they called it the Australian Reptile Club. And as time progressed uh, in the sort of year or two after it was established, it grew quite large. It turned out there were lots of people who were passionate about reptiles, men and women, and they were interested in snakes, lizards, the, the full gamut. And that club was formed right at the time that Taipan hysteria was reaching its peak, and this, of course, caught the members' attention. So three of those members of, of that club decide that they're going to go and catch a Taipan. What was their plan? So that was Roy McKay, Kevin Budden and Neville Goddard. Their plan was to travel by train and also by air to the very remote community of Cohen up on the Cape York Peninsula because some early specimens of Taipan had been captured there. Their plan seems to have been relatively vague. <laughs> they, I mean, had they even seen a Taipan? They had never even seen one. So how did they know what they were looking they for? They knew they were looking for a very large brown venomous snake and they had experience with handling snakes. They kept them and they spent their weekends catching them. That said, I don't think anything that experienced in Sydney, even with large common brown snakes, in any way prepared them for taipans. But their, their plan seemed to have been to uh, pin the snakes down pick them up behind the head, put them into sugar, a sugar bag or, or if they could pick them up by the tail and put them into a sugar bag, which with a, a snake that's eight feet long, obviously you can't. So that, that's the, that was the kind of naive enthusiasm they brought to this trip and, and they headed north in 1949 with quite a bit of attention from the media actually. And when they arrived in Cohen, how hard was it to find a taipan? It was extremely hard. The... Grass in that area was very, very, very long. The conditions were harsh. While they were there, Neville Goddard, who'd served in the Second World War, had a relapse of malaria, so he became very, very ill. They were camping. They were living rough. They caught many, many snakes, but and there would have been many taipans there. But the thing about taipans, they're very, very alert. They're very fast, and they're not. They don't have the aggression that people say they do. I'm sure many, many taipans would have seen those boys searching for them out in the bush and the taipans just went the other way. But they did see one. And did they manage to catch one? No, they saw two of them. Kevin Budden was actually off collecting mail at the airstrip, but Neville Goddard and Roy McKay saw a taipan on a track. Uh, they ran at it, tried to grab it. It chose the flight option out of fight and flight, disappeared into the long grass. They spotted it again briefly, maybe 30 seconds later, near a uh, termite mound. Uh, the Taipan again did a U-turn, disapp disappeared into the grass, and they returned after six weeks of searching without a Taipan and extremely disappointed by their, their failure because they felt... They did feel this sense of responsibility that if they didn't get the anti-venom program ticking over... If the Australian Reptile Club wasn't going to do it, who would? So how is anti-venom created? What, what do you need? So you need live specimens in captivity. You can't use dead snakes. You need somebody to milk the snakes by getting them to bite. It's a very disturbing verb, milk the snake. <laughs> yeah, it is disturbing. <laughs> how do you milk a snake? You get a jar. You put a rubber film over the top of the jar. You hold the snake behind the head and you encourage the snake to bite through the rubber film and the venom comes from the fangs and will go into the jar. 
you then take that venom and this is what I'm giving you is really simplified and I should say I'm a writer, not a scientist. <laughs> uh, I'm sure all the scientists will, will send me emails explaining how I've got it wrong, but you inject a sublethal dose, so a tiny, tiny amount into, a, a, for instance, a horse. The horse's immune system recognises the danger, neutralises it. You gradually increase the dosage until the horse is completely immune. You extract the antibodies from the horse and you can then inject those into a person who is bitten by a snake and the antibodies will neutralise the venom in the person's body. So you need to have a live snake and you need to milk it more than once? Is it it's something that needs yes. a lot of venom? If you've yeah, got to keep it's... injecting it into that horse or the sheep or whatever you're using? To... Correct. It's a slow process over time. You really need more than one live specimen, but you definitely need at least one. But at this point, there is no live specimen in captivity anywhere in Australia. Nowhere in the world, zero. So these guys fail in their effort, their first effort to try to catch a taipan. But yes. Kevin Budden, who's the youngest of yep. the party, he stays up Right, north. so as they were coming back to the south, they weren't all the way back. I think that from memory they might have been in Brisbane they thought Kevin was keeping something to himself and then he, he said to them at that point, I'm not, I'm not going to travel any further south. I want to stay up here. I want to keep searching. I, I don't want to come back without a Taipan. And, and they were very worried about him. They didn't want him to do it. His family were very worried about him, but there was no telling him and that was, that was the decision that he made. What kind of family did Kevin come from? A relatively poor family. Uh, they lived in a, a cottage near Sydney, essentially, living in the house. You had Kevin, who was 19 uh, in 1949, his mother and father, his older sister and his older sister's husband. They all lived together in this little house. So this was catching the Taipan was something he wanted to do for science, but maybe also, you know, setting himself up in a in a kind of profession or as a kind of reputation. Definitely. He wanted, along with Neville Goddard, to start his own reptile park. And given that a large amount of money was required for that and given that uh, the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories and other scientific organisations were prepared to pay top dollar for a Taipan, there was a financial incentive. There was the incentive of his own personal interest. But I, I think first and foremost his incentive was that he, they all wanted to contribute to saving of lives because people were dying from Taipan bites. So Kevin stayed up in uh, up in Queensland, went back up north. Back to Cairns. Back to Cairns. Did he find one? What he did was he searched around Cairns for a long time, didn't find any. He was staying at the museum. He actually put an ad in the newspaper saying, I'm searching for Taipans if you know where there is one. I'm staying at the museum. Can you please <laughs> deliver a note? And a note was delivered suggesting that somebody thought there might have been one at a rubbish dump on the outskirts of town, which Kevin knew would make sense because there'd be rats there. And so one morning in 1949, uh, just before dawn, because he didn't have a car either, he was walking and catching the bus everywhere, he got his snake bag and he set off towards the dump. And what did he find? When he got there, and it's very different from what Cairns is like now, it's a very, that was a very isolated spot, not a true rubbish dump, really just a sort of wasteland area where there was garbage scattered around. He heard a high-pitched squealing sound, which he identified or recognised as a rat in distress. He followed the sound to a piece of discarded fibro. He lifted it up. Underneath the piece of fibro was a bush rat's nest, and Kevin found a very large snake with its head in the bush rat's nest in the process of swallowing the rat. 
Kevin identified this as actually a prime opportunity for him to catch the snake because with a rat in its mouth, it couldn't bite him. So he stepped on its neck, just behind its neck, worked his fingers down behind its head and grabbed it behind the head. The Taipan, obviously in a state of real terror, thinking it's about to be eaten by a predator, has regurgitated the rat to free its mouth. And Kevin has stood up and the snake has wrapped itself. It was a bit close to seven feet long, longer than Kevin was tall, wrapped itself around his body. And Kevin found himself in this position completely alone at this uh, dump uh, with his snake bag and absolutely no way of getting the snake into the bag. What did he do? He thought about his predicament and he decided, unbelievably, this falls into the you couldn't make it up category, (laughs) he decided that he would walk to the Edge Hill Road with the snake he would hitchhike and what? He, yes, he would ask whoever, if somebody picked him up, to he would ask them to take him to. He had a friend named Ernie Stevens, a friend he'd made in Cairns, who was also a naturalist. He would ask for a ride to Ernie Stevens' house, where he was sure Ernie Stevens would be able to one identify the snake because Kevin still wasn't sure if it was a taipan or not, but to help him put it in the bag. So, so he sets off walking, holding a seven-foot. Taipan and trying to hitchhike. Correct. So he's walking towards the house, hoping he'll get picked up to turn the half-hour walk into a five-minute Did anybody pick him up? Amazingly, yes. And I should give some credit here as well to a herpetologist named uh, Dr. David Williams, who did a lot of great research in this and actually interviewed uh, Neville Goddard, a good friend of Kevin Bunn's before he died. Uh, But he was picked up by a truck driver named Jim Harris, uh, Jim Harris stopped, amazingly actually picked him up, said jump in when Kevin explained the situation. Where would where would the Taipan have been while they were in the in the truck? In Kevin Budden's hand, like held behind the head with its body wrapped around him. On the other side from where the guy driving the truck is, I'm assuming. Yes, we we would assume. And they drive to his friend's house? They drive to the house. Uh, Ernie Stevens came out with his wife. And uh, Ernie Stevens said, yes, that's a Taipan, sent his wife back into the house to collect a bag, came back with the bag. How Uh, do you bag a Taipan? It's especially back then an exceptionally difficult task. Their plan and the plan of what they did in that era was you would hold the snake behind the head, put the the rest of the body of the snake into the bag in reverse and then wait until the snake was pulling into the bag. So this did reach a point where the snake's trying to see the bag as safety and pull away from you into it. Correct. It wants to be in the bag at Uh that point. And when they feel that, they quickly, with a flick of the wrist, throw the head into the bag, pull the drawstring, and the animal is then secure. So uh, Kevin had the snake, had the taipan behind its neck. His friend Ernie's got the bag. Kevin's dropping it in. What happened? Something went catastrophically wrong. The snake got free from Kevin Budden's grip, fell to the ground in front of him. Uh, Ernie got well clear, and in a fraction of a second, what happened was the Taipan bit Kevin Budden's trouser leg twice, not getting through to the skin. And that was fortunate because it would have expended a lot of venom that would have just gone into the material of his trousers. Um, But then it kind of launched straight upwards and managed to bite the palm of his left hand. It then let go and started to escape. 
Button grabbed it by the tail, put it into the bag then and secured the bag. But, of course, he knew that he'd been envenomated. So he was bitten and then he still went and caught the snake and put it in the bag. That's how important it was to him. What, what happened? Did he, did he go to hospital? Well, firstly, Jim Harris, the truck driver, wanted to kill the snake. He said, I'm going to kill this snake right now. Give me the bag. And Kevin said, no, the snake cannot be killed. I've come up here for the purpose of capturing it. It must be looked after. Ensure that it's sent south to the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories where the production of antivenom can begin. Uh, And only when Jim Harris agreed not to harm the snake did Budden agree to uh, be taken to hospital. And that's where he went to Cairns Hospital. And and what happened? So this snake had already used up a lot of venom on the rat. It had used up venom biting his trouser leg and not mm-hmm. getting through. So there was a chance for him? Well, there was a chance in the sense that George Rosendale had survived. And Rosendale's bite was far worse when you look at the circumstances than Kevin Budden's. But Budden became progressively more and more ill. He was paralysed to the extent that he could neither speak nor breathe by himself. They put him in the iron lung, which worked for a while but then didn't work. They removed him from the iron lung and attempted uh, manual respiration, which back then involved some strange manoeuvre on the patient's back. And tragically, Kevin Budden died as a result of the bite that he experienced from that taipan, which was by that stage uh, in the bag just sitting in in Jim Harris's truck, still alive. What then happened to that snake? Jim Harris took it to the museum. The museum curators put it in a second bag, put it in a box, locked the box, wrapped the box in steel gauze, then arranged to have it flown on a TAA Airlines flight to Melbourne to huge media interest. It was a massive story at that time. And then eventually the Taipan reached Melbourne. It was taken to the, the museum there and they needed somebody to milk it and they didn't have anybody prepared to milk it I can't it imagine initially. there were too many people putting their hands up. There were none. So so it's it's there. What, what, what happened? Who did they get? They contacted a man named David Flay who was running the show at the Hillsville Sanctuary at that time. He'd been involved in the development of the tiger snake antivenom. And he was contacted and he said, can I think about it overnight? He had very young children. And they said, sure. And the following morning he rang back and he said, look, I will do it. And he felt that he owed it to Kevin Budden, who he'd never met, but who he he had this sense of, of responsibility to continue his legacy. And so he went down to the museum up to the, uh, the curator's workshop where the the snake was waiting in its box. So it hadn't been unpacked yet since It had since, not come out of cans. the box, no. Still in the bag. Still it, in the box. That, that Kevin had put it in. And he, he would have gone into that room by himself or were there other there people there? There are a couple there? of other people there. But what nobody knew, they all thought it was inside two bags in a box, but in the intervening time from its capture to its flight south, it had actually worked and worked and worked with its snout on the stitching of the inner bag and it had broken out of the inner bag and it was then in the outer bag. So David Flay thought when he opened the box, he would have two bags to open. But when he opened the first bag, he found himself confronted by uh, the taipan right in front of him. Uh, and what happened? Did, did he grab it or did it, did he have something else? Was he just getting it with his hand? He had snake tongs 
which uh, are, I suppose, exactly what they sound like. And so he, you can be at a distance. You from can it. be at a, di- at a distance, but at that moment he wasn't, and he managed to tip it onto the the floor without being bitten. He got it right behind the head with the snake tongs. Was then able to grab it behind the head himself, and he successfully milked that taipan. And at that point, Commonwealth Serum Laboratories had their first sample of taipan antivenom, and the uh, the antivenom program could begin. It's just such extraordinary heroics. Absolutely. Uh, so he and he would have never seen a taipan before. No, this is this is his first encounter Correct. with the snake. What happened to it then? I mean, can a snake, can you milk a snake more than once for its venom? You can. You need to do it at intervals, otherwise it's too traumatic for the animal and it will die. I think generally they milk them about every two weeks. But that taipan was looked after very, very poorly and it died very, very soon afterwards. So although they had that first sample of venom, they found themselves once again in the situation of having no live specimens. And so once again, members of the Australian Reptile Club realised they were going to have to send out more expeditions. When more snakes eventually were found through extraordinary means and sent back, uh, this time to Taronga Zoo, I yes. think, under under the care of George Khan, whose yep. son John Khan has been a guest on Conversations, how long did it take them to have an antivenom that was able to be used on humans? The uh, antivenom was finalised in 1955, so it took, let's say, five years. And who was the first person to get that Taipan antivenom? The first person to receive it was that 10-year-old boy who I mentioned earlier, Bruce Stringer. who has been bit- playing Cowboys and Indians. Cowboys and Indians, that's right, at the back of his schoolyard. And he was taken to Cairns Hospital and was injected with the very first vials of Taipan antivenom. Did they know it would work? No, they didn't. They had a reasonable suspicion that it would work because the tiger snake antivenom had been made in the same way. So there was no scientific reason to think that it wouldn't, but you never really know. And sometimes people can die even with antivenom. So it wasn't a certainty at all that Bruce would survive. And Bruce was just 10. He was unconscious after this taipan bite. Yes. Once they gave him the antivenom, how long did it take to work? It was fairly quick. Within the next 12 sort of hours, he was becoming paralysed just like Kevin Budden was. So he was headed to the same fate. He was going to die most probably of asphyxiation. His speech was very, very slurred. They injected the antivenom. Not long after that, the slurring of the speech started to disappear. His breathing was improving and wasn't long after that that it was clear that he was going to make a full recovery. <laughs> it's just it's wonderful. Were there any side effects either from, from the, the bite or the antivenom? Yes. Bruce completely lost his sense of taste and smell. I find it fascinating that in subsequent years, Bruce Stringer actually became a doctor himself. Really? Yeah. I find that fascinating. As someone who writes about history, you, you think of the flow-on effect of things and you think, well, if people like Kevin Budden hadn't done what they did, the antivenom, it would have eventually been ready, but it wouldn't have been ready for Bruce Stringer in 1955 and he would have died. He survives, he becomes a doctor, and you think of all the lives he saved. But he ended up marrying a nurse and she relates a story of where they were going for a picnic one day, driving along, and he said, ah, here we go, it's the perfect spot, pulled the car over, and she said, are you joking? And in a culvert nearby was a rotting carcass of a, a bullock, I think it was, and he couldn't smell that at all. And was that from, from what? From the antivenom or the bite? No, that's from the taipan bite. It's not unheard of for people bitten by snakes 
with neurotoxic venom to lose their sense of taste and smell, sometimes for short periods of time, sometimes forever. One of those strange effects, I suppose. Such an extraordinary thing for this little 10-year-old to survive, to be the first human to have um, type 1 anti-venom. Is it Mm. something that he talked about? Have you met him? I have met him. Uh, Bruce is another interesting person. He's not, uh, by his own admission, he's not a particularly talkative person. He's not uh, someone... He's the kind of doctor who's the very scientific doctor, I think, if that makes sense. He eventually became an anaesthetist. Um, And it was only... He'd been with his wife for quite some time, and it was only shortly before they got married that um, she found out this story, that he'd had this brush with death as a little boy. Um, Interesting. I I have a few views about that. Sometimes I wonder if it's kind of a trauma that he doesn't want to revisit, but he explains it as he's just not a talkative person. Kevin Budden, though, of course, as you say, was not lucky, but it was his sacrifice, I think we can use the word, that led to the anti-venom. Where's Kevin Budden buried? He's at the Cairns Cemetery. Have you been there? I have when I was researching the book, and it was a really interesting experience because I went there on a weekend, and it was poor planning by me because there was no one there who could show me where the grave was. So it's a big cemetery. I could see this car in the distance and I thought, well, I'll walk up there and ask. And I walked out to this car. turned out it was just a random car. It was nobody who knew much of anything. Um, And I thought, well, I'm never going to find this grave. And then I just kind of walked along the path and just by sheer luck, uh, I stumbled upon Kevin Budden's grave. It was only about 20 or 30 metres from where I was standing. (laughs) What's written on that gravestone? There's a plaque that says a whole lot of things, but in, the main message that it has there is dolce et decorum est pro scientia mori, which is a Latin phrase which means it's sweet and honourable to give your life for science, uh, which is debatable whether or not that's true, but I think it's definitely sweet and honourable to give your life for others, and that's what Kevin Budden did. And if he hadn't died, as I say, Bruce wouldn't be alive today to uh, enjoy, as he does, children and grandchildren and a retirement out at Geelong. You you mentioned this small family, a close family, all living together that um, Kevin had come from. Did they feel that way? How did they feel about their their son's death? They felt terribly about it. I don't think they did feel that way. His sister eventually came to feel that way. Kevin Budden's father died less than a year after his son, and he was only a relatively young man, and I believe, and the family believes, that he died from the trauma of the loss of his son. So it really devastated the family, and I think it did take many years. Dorothy, Kevin's sister, was very, very angry with members of the Australian Reptile Club for some time. She blamed them for keeping him interested in reptiles and for not being there with him. But she also eventually came to to forgive them as well, and that was uh, one of the really moving things that it that I found about this story too. Where are taipans today, Brendan? Uh, From far, far northern coastal New South Wales, pretty much right around the coast, up onto Cape York Peninsula and into northern Western Australia. This is the coastal taipan. And also in uh, Papua New Guinea. And are they finding new species of taipan or is the one that was identified back in the, the 30s and 40s still the, the main one? No, so there are others. So there's the inland taipan, which is even more venomous, found way out in the desert and people never encounter them. Uh, all the bites have been scientists. And only in, I think it was 2012, 
they found another uh, another type of taipan again, the Western Ranges taipan, out in the, the desert towards Western Australia. But now if we're bit by a taipan, God forbid, we get to a hospital and there'll be antivenom. There should be, yes. <laughs> there should be or there will be? Well, they're, they're, if you're bitten within the taipan's range, the hospitals there should have antivenom. Don't get bitten in Hobart then is what you're telling us. No, but I'm sure there's zoos down there that could help you out. Brendan, I'm I'm horrified and astonished and grateful for the story that you've told today. Thank you so much for, for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you for having me. Sarah spoke with Brendan James Murray in 2018 and his book is called Venom. I'm Dylan and I listen to Conversations via podcast down here at Davis Station, Antarctica. What I really love about this episode I chose is the enormous effort and sacrifice that went into capturing that snake. Being able to listen to Conversations Daily has been part of my life for quite a few years now. And since being down in Antarctica, it's been that little bit more special. That hour really can help with the ups and downs of being isolated with the same group of people. We are wintering right now, but in summer, I'd sometimes save up a week's worth to listen to while watching the sunrise over the broken sea ice. With icebergs in the background, it's real pinch-yourself type of stuff. Also, in summer, I'll go for a long hike over barren terrains that's millions of years old. And to be able to plug your headphones in at a hut in the middle of the Vestfold Hills and listen to conversation is just unreal. The show was always a comfort in Australia, but it means so much more to have the comfort of it down in Antarctica when you're so far away from home. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. All is not as it seems in the small country town of McElroy. Hello? Jackway. Who's calling? Follow the data. What did you say? Follow the data. Who is this? Hello? Hello? Strange things are happening, like the school principal's missing. Everyone says she's on long service leave, but they're obviously lying. And someone or something is keeping tabs on everyone in McElroy and crashing the entire town's internet every night to do it. That's like government levels of data. We should report this. To the cops? No, NASA. Yeah, the cops. The only people onto it are Tang and her best mate Mitch, students at the local high school. Why are there eight security cameras? Someone's watching. And someone doesn't want them to find out what's really going on. Don't look back. Just keep pedalling. Did it see us? I don't think so. Join Tang and Mitch on a weird and wild adventure. Can you hear that? This is crazy. This is actually crazy. McElroy. It's a town with secrets. What's the matter? What is it? There's someone over there. What? Mitch, run! McElroy Uncovered. A new podcast for kids from the ABC. Listen for free on the ABC Listen app or on other podcast apps like Apple and Google.